Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. The growing calls for New York Governor Andrew Cuomo to resign amid multiple allegations of sexual harassment in a nursing home scandal has focused attention on the state's number two in command, Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Kathy Hochul is not exactly a household name around New York State. The lieutenant governor in her sixth year in office has stayed in the shadows compared to the attention-seeking Andrew Cuomo. It is my high honor to welcome you to... Until recently, her most notable public appearances have been to introduce the governor at the annual State of the State speech and to talk up his agenda. But Hochul, known for her warm and upbeat personality, is a successful elected official in her own right. In 2011, she won a special election for a congressional seat and held it for 18 months until her defeat to the now-disgraced Chris Collins. Hochul's grandparents emigrated from Ireland. Her father was a former steelworker in Lackawanna who rose to head his own information technology company. Hochul attended Syracuse University. She received her law degree from Catholic University. Her husband, Bill, also a lawyer, is the former U.S. attorney for the Western District of New York. After law school, she worked in Washington for New York elected officials, including former New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. But she had to quit when she found the hours conflicted with looking after her small child. She shared the experience in an interview with public radio and TV last August. I loved my job, but the hours were crazy. I mean, we would work morning till night and sometimes through. We literally pulled all-nighters uh, when they were in session. You have a child? Nobody to watch the kids. She moved back to Buffalo, had another child, and eventually ran for town council in the suburb of Hamburg. Fourteen years later, she was elected as Erie County Clerk. Hochul, a lifelong Democrat, at the time was more conservative than liberal. She vocally opposed then-Governor Elliot Spitzer's efforts to grant driver's licenses to undocumented immigrants, saying that if they tried to apply, she'd call the sheriff to bring them in for questioning. And when she ran for Congress, the National Rifle Association endorsed her. Hochul has since changed her view on the driver's licenses, and she split with the NRA over the issue of school shootings. In 2014, the state's then-lieutenant governor, former Rochester Mayor Bob Duffy, declined to seek re-election, saying back problems prevented him from continuing a busy travel schedule. Cuomo chose Hochul as a replacement, introducing her at the 2014 Democratic State Convention in a promotional video. She picked up travel duties with enthusiasm, often attending five or six events a day from Buffalo to New York City. Hochul's also been an avid participant in a series of sporting contests Cuomo's held to promote tourism, including the Adirondack Winter Challenge, where she broke her wrist and several ribs while attempting a ski jump. She recounted the experience at a meeting of the Common Ground Alliance in Long Lake, recorded by North Country Public Radio. I dismissed the airbag completely. So, so. 
Um, I want to tell you that the quality of health care in the North Country is really good. Despite the injuries, the years of campaign-style appearances earned her a wide array of allies in every corner of the state. When Cuomo in 2018 indicated he might want Hochul off of the ticket, suggesting she might want to try again for her former congressional seat, Hochul asserted herself. She called a series of journalists into her private offices outside the Senate chamber to signal her intentions and then made clear that she intended to run for a second term as lieutenant governor. The governor and I are running together, and when we are sworn in on January 1, 2019, You'll look back and say this is the biggest non-story of the year. For the past year during the COVID-19 pandemic, Cuomo has largely excluded the lieutenant governor from the management of the crisis. Hochul has issued just two brief statements on the sexual harassment allegations, saying that while the women's complaints need to be heard and taken seriously, she wants to wait for the ongoing investigation by the state's attorney general to play out. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Meanwhile, a new poll finds 50 percent of New York voters feel Governor Andrew Cuomo should not immediately resign. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas with that story. The Siena Research Institute survey respondents are strongly in favor of keeping the third-term Democrat in office. They say he can still lead New York State despite allegations and investigations. The poll was taken between March 8 and March 12. Siena's Steve Greenberg. While many elected officials, Democrats and Republicans alike, have called for Governor Andrew Cuomo's resignation by a 50 to 35 percent margin, the voters of New York say Cuomo should not immediately resign. Nearly two-thirds of Republicans say Cuomo should resign, but 61 percent of Democrats and a plurality of independents, 46 percent, say he should not resign immediately. According to the poll, 48% of voters believe the Democratic governor can effectively do his job as he faces multiple sexual harassment allegations and increasing scrutiny of his handling of the pandemic. A strong majority of Democrats and a plurality of independents say Cuomo can govern effectively, while Republicans, two-thirds of them, disagree. When we ask voters, do you think that Governor Cuomo has or has not committed sexual harassment? Voters are all across the board right now. 35% of voters say, yes, he has committed sexual harassment. 24% of voters say, no, they don't think he has. But a plurality of voters, 41%, are unsure whether he has or has. Greenberg says 57% of New Yorkers are satisfied with the way Cuomo has addressed the allegations. Right now, Cuomo's favorability rating is 43 favorable, 45 unfavorable, down significantly from when it was 56 to 39% last month. His job performance rating is now underwater, 46% positive, 52% negative compared to a 51-47% positive rating last month. And right now, only 34% of voters say they're prepared to re-elect Cuomo if he runs for re-election next year, while 52% said they would prefer, quote, someone else, unquote. That's down significantly from last month when 46% were prepared to re-elect him and 45% 
wanted someone else. The poll also found that voters approve of Cuomo's handling of COVID-19 by a margin of 60 to 33 percent. Siena also asked voters about two rising New York state government figures. It found Democratic Attorney General Tish James, who is overseeing an investigation into Cuomo, with a 40 to 14 percent favorability rating, her highest mark yet. Democratic Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul next in line to be governor, has a 23 to 14 percent favorability rating, but nearly two-thirds of voters have never heard of her or don't know enough to have an opinion. The poll of 805 registered New York State voters closed Friday before evening calls for Cuomo to resign from Senator Chuck Schumer and Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. The survey has an overall margin of error, of plus or minus 4.1 percentage points. There's more at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Well, Alan, little by little, the governor's support has been fading away. And this week, President Biden weighed in on the situation, going so far as to say if the investigation finds the governor did sexually harass his former female aides who've alleged so, He should resign and that he will likely be prosecuted. Now, the governor has come out yesterday declining to answer questions about the allegations against him, citing a Siena College poll that finds a majority of New Yorkers do not want him to step down. Cuomo says he's focused on the state budget. It's due in just two weeks. The Democrat was asked about the allegations, and he's standing firm. He is not going to resign. Your thoughts on where you think this will go? Well, everybody is waiting for the size 13 shoe to drop. We don't know what's coming next. So far, Cuomo is hanging tough. And he's saying, I'm not going to resign. The people elected me. The uh, Siena poll shows that the people are still supporting me. And he's not going to resign because his alternative is to quit. And if he quits, he's in disgrace forever. So he doesn't want to do that. That's clear. Now, if in fact more information comes out, he might have to quit. But when his friend, he says, comes out and says, he should resign if the investigation, and of course there are investigations, there's the state attorney general, Letitia James, and then we're hearing that he's doing his own, maybe counter-investigation. So this ain't over. We're also hearing about a lot of the behind-the-scenes things that have been going on, from the Larry Schwartzes to some of the machinations by the Cuomo administration to get out ahead of the scandal before it broke. Well, David, look, one of the problems we have in this country is that a great deal happens that we don't know about. You know, we like to say, God bless the press, and I say it too. You know, they can bring things out. But there's a lot that happens. People know things before the events. And it makes for a rather unequal distribution of power. 
because if people know and they create a situation where they can take advantage of their knowledge, it does make for an unequal system of economic and other political equality. Take a look, for example, at the stock market. We are told, and we prosecute every once in a while, somebody who has advanced information and uses it. But come on, you mean to say people don't know or aren't on top of the idea that a drug will fail or something of that kind will happen? No, there is always going to be inside information. And the question is, will the government do anything about that? Because we can pass laws saying you can't use it, you can't do it, and very few people get prosecuted for it. But it still stinks. Well, and then you have the budget. We keep talking about this. They have to negotiate a budget. You've made it very clear. You think the governor's certainly capable of negotiating a budget at this point. The two leaders have said basically they will work with the governor on the budget while the investigation occurs. And one thing that's becoming more clear now and has taken many years and fights over the equality and distribution of revenue is the legalization of marijuana in New York. They seem to be right on the cusp of this deal, something that you've talked about has siphoned money away from New York to places like your home state of Massachusetts and now Connecticut. You have Vermont and New Jersey, all these states around that have been seeing a lot of New York license plates. Let me make one thing clear, David. I have never, ever used marijuana, and I think mind-altering drugs in any case, and when we say mind-altering, somebody gets a high, is a bad idea. I think you should live life and face it. Nevertheless, there are a lot of people who want it and are going to get it. And they're going to get it one way or the other. And it may well be because, you know, the criminal justice system allows certain people to get it and certain people not to. There is such a thing as white privilege. You can use marijuana, you know, in your Fifth Avenue apartment. But if you're smoking a joint on Lenox Avenue in uh, Harlem, you're in trouble. You can be in much more trouble. Our prisons have shown that. So marijuana reform is a must. Now they're fighting over the distribution of how it's going to be done and who's going to get the money and all of that. The issue, of course, according to Speaker Hasty, is traffic accidents as a result of marijuana. Now we know we have all kinds of tests that we can give people in terms of driving impairment because of alcohol. Whether or not it's really going to be that easy there's some who claim that there are tests, but whether it's going to really be that easy to figure out whether somebody was driving impaired because of marijuana. And there are a lot of things that have to be considered. And yet, so many states, as you point out, David, have done it. They know what they're doing. I'm not reading a great deal in the newspapers about an accident that was caused by marijuana impairment. So they'll have to figure it out. I think the pressure on them is so great. The other thing that has been bothering some members of the legislature has been, who gets the money? Does it go to the state? Does it go to the county? Does it go to various hospitals? And does it go in equal distributions to places that use marijuana, protected white privilege? Or does it go back to the communities which have a problem? So that's a tough one. And I'm only thinking that we're in a situation where if you want to find problems, you can. Somehow, all these other states have been able to do it without anything that looks 
terrible. Now, in my little hometown of Great Barrington, right over the border from New York, where people have fled to come to get their pot, it's gotten to be a little too much. Everywhere you look, on the main street, all over the place, you have these businesses popping up, which are selling. I think what we saw with liquor licenses, for example, that not everybody should be put into the marijuana sales thing who wants to be. And I'm opposed to that because I think that there has to be a system in which our kids who are walking down the main street of Great Barrington don't see a pot shop, say, Mommy, what's that? And I think New York is getting to it, but it sure is the long way around. Yeah, and you referenced the traffic issue. And, of course, the district attorneys of the state are negotiating over that. The rank and file, though, many police officers and there are police organizations that support the legalization. They say their time is taken up with a lot of these low-level arrests and they should be dedicating their time to something more significant. Well, that's right, David, but I don't know how many people are getting arrested. I'm sure that there are people who get picked on. And as I said before, the idea that marijuana reform is needed because it affects people of color and people who are lower down on the socioeconomic scale is very real. And that needs to be attended to. So I think the DAs are correct in looking out because they have to do the prosecuting. And the cops are certainly correct in that their time could be better spent doing other things. But we're in a place now where it's going to happen, and it better happen sooner rather than later, because New Yorkers are being deprived of that income. Finally, Alan, it is Sunshine Week this week, a nationwide celebration of free press and open government. The New York State Assembly member from New York's Hudson Valley, a story by our Allison Dunn in the program this week, has introduced two bills to amend the open meetings law and freedom of information law, something politicians don't like to respond to. Look, we have freedom of information laws. When something embarrassing happens to a politician, the last thing they want to do is have that out there. So despite the fact that we have these laws, we have these prohibitions against closing things up, politicians do, and they hide stuff. And we have seen it with this governor, and we've seen it with other people, that they are slow to come forth and say, okay, you can have anything you want. We have laws that say you're supposed to, but quite frequently they don't. And that really needs to be attended to. Now, let's face it, David, you could be in the state legislature. You could be one of these very people who don't like everything coming out. Are you going to pass the kinds of laws which demand immediate enforcement? I don't think so. Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Chartaud. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. A group of bipartisan lawmakers in the House and Senate have introduced legislation that would support research to investigate the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on mental health. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard reports. Capital Region Democratic Congressman Paul Tonko joined Minnesota Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar and mental health advocates to discuss their new legislation being called the Mental Health Research Act. Also sponsoring the legislation are Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat of Virginia, and New York Republican Congressman John Katko of Central New York. 
Here's Tonko. Our Mental Health Research Act, which Senator Klobuchar and I introduced with Congressman Katko and Senator Kane on a bipartisan, bicameral basis this week, undertakes this vital and frankly long overdue work to examine the mental health impacts of COVID-19, especially for our medical professionals, our emergency responders, and our children. The legislation would direct $100 million a year for the next five years to the National Institute of Mental Health. Senator Klobuchar says COVID has not allowed those affected by the loss of a loved one to go through the typical rituals of the grieving process. She says communities of color have been especially affected. And while we do have research on the impact of long-term stress and trauma, we have never experienced anything of this magnitude for this long period of time and affecting so many people. This bill will help us learn about the impact of the pandemic on our mental health, understand resiliency, evaluate how telehealth worked and didn't work and why, and find new ways to improve access to needed treatment and support, especially for the BIPOC community. Dr. Brenda Robinson, CEO of the Black Nurses Coalition and chair of the City of Albany Commission on Human Rights, says healthcare workers have paid a particular price during the pandemic. This price we pay is mental and physical. It's been emotionally scarring to watch patients die and even to watch um, bodies pile up that look like me. As a black woman and a nurse, I carry generational trauma of historical poor race relations of this country. This is now compounded with the suffering of COVID-19. And let me tell you, healthcare professionals, all frontline workers, we all carry this trauma of COVID-19 together, together. The bill would also support research on how children are affected. Andrea Smith is executive director of the New York State Coalition for Children's Behavioral Health. We know children are affected by their experiences, and we know that positive childhood development is disrupted by trauma and adverse experiences. The disruption, if it's not addressed, may affect a child throughout life, not just their mental health, their health, their happiness, their relationships, their productivity. It's also true and well-established in the children's mental health field that having the right interventions at the right moment can have a positive impact for years. The officials on Thursday's call said the Mental Health Research Act would complement existing federal support for mental health services. The recently signed American Rescue Act COVID relief package includes $4 billion for mental health services. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This is Sunshine Week, a nationwide celebration of free press and open government. As a way to shine the light brighter, a New York State Assembly member from the Hudson Valley has introduced two bills to amend the open meetings law and the freedom of information law. The Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn explains. The New York Coalition for Open Government, a nonpartisan nonprofit organization dedicated to transparency in government, celebrated Sunshine Week in part by recognizing National Freedom of Information Day March 16th. Democratic State Assemblymember Amy Paulin of Scarsdale 
joined a virtual press conference the day before. Uh, you know, it's time has come. There's no question that during this pandemic, everyone has learned to adjust uh, and to do things differently. And what we're changing is a reflection of that. What she's hoping to change in open meetings law is deleting a certain phrase and requiring that meeting documents be posted in a defined manner and time frame. I had done the original law that uh, required documents to be uh, made available to the public. And we had put it in a phrase uh, to the extent practicable because when, um, which um, uh, I, I honestly in the beginning didn't even want, but I was persuaded that there might be times where the documents might be too big or they were achieved last minute or what have you. So that it really was a phrase that was needed in order to accommodate um, uh, practically what was happening. And instead it's been used as a way to evade uh, the law. Her legislation would remove this phrase in most instances as well as require meeting documents to be posted online at least 24 hours before a meeting. The meeting also must be streamed on the meeting body's website to the extent practicable. And meeting video must be posted within five business days of the meeting, with recordings maintained for at least five years. Pollan says that currently, industrial development agencies are required to live stream their meetings and post video recordings of their meetings online, but other public bodies are not required to do so. Paul Wolf is president of the New York Coalition for Open Government. We just recently released a report regarding villages across New York State, where we took a look at 20 villages. And we found in that report that 70% are not posting their meeting documents online. And that's just a huge problem with informing the public. Wolf's group issued a report last year for towns and cities and found 20% did not post their meeting documents while a 2019 study found 40% of school boards were not posting these documents. With the pandemic, uh, the governor's emergency order has mandated that if a meeting, if a board is not meeting in public, they have to live stream the meeting and post a video of the meeting afterwards. And this has been huge for the public. He says virtual meetings are drawing larger audiences than pre-pandemic in-person meetings. In Buffalo, 18,000 people recently viewed a city council meeting through Facebook. Uh, In the city of Ogdensburg, which has a population up north of 10,000 people, 3,000 people signed on to watch a city council meeting. Holland's other bill would eliminate fees for obtaining records through a Freedom of Information Law or FOIL request when an electronic copy already exists. Nassau County Democrat Anna Kaplan sponsors both of Pollan's bills in the Senate, and Pollan of the 88th District has the same four co-sponsors for each bill, including Democrat Sandy Galef, whose 95th District includes part of Putnam County and part of Northern Westchester. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Allison Dunn. That about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2112. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. 
for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.